The Start On Demand. On demand. Hey, hey, it's GMAC. It's the Start On Demand. Don't forget to take some time to download, share, and rate the Start podcast. We appreciate everyone who subscribes as well. And on this Friday, the Toronto Raptors are two wins away from the NBA championship. How are people consuming NBA and other sports? The answer might surprise you. We'll speak to an expert from Ryerson University on that. Jim Kite, former Winnipeg Jet. I won't call him a tough guy. I won't call him an enforcer because he doesn't call himself that. He's just a genuinely fabulous guy. Always did great things in the community when he was a member of the hockey team. He's being honored by Dash. Tonight we'll tell you who they are and why Jim Kite is being honored the way he is. So without further ado, let's get right down to business. The Toronto Raptors, of course, the talk of Canada right now as they are up 2-1 in their series against the Golden State Warriors. More and more Canadians are leaving what most of us consider traditional technology behind, and that includes land, telephone lines, and cable. This is having an effect on how we consume all sorts of entertainment options, including sports. So here's the headline. Fewer young Canadians are watching Raptors playoff games at home as cable subscriptions have plummeted in recent years, leaving millennial fans to find other ways to watch. Laura Walzak, assistant professor, faculty of communication and design, experts at Ryerson University, joins us now to discuss this further. Good morning, Laurel. Good morning. So are we talking about fewer eyeballs or just fewer televisions or, or subscriptions? We are talking fewer fewer TVs, definitely. I think uh, the competition for eyeballs is still at the forefront, but where the consumers and the fans are watching is not necessarily on cable, although uh, you definitely can see that the, the viewership numbers have been at the highest. I think they, the highest so far has been 7.4 million watching one of the games. So they're still watching, but they're consuming in, in, in many different media and technology platforms. So, Laurel, would those numbers be gathered uh, via the traditional means uh, and folks watching on cable? Could those numbers, could the number of eyeballs be much higher than that? Oh, absolutely. Yes, they're much higher. And they're not just here in Canada, but yes. So if you take a look at the social platforms, which the Raptors and the NBA are leading in this space, it used to be Major League Baseball, but now the NBA is leading. So particularly with the Raptors, Social media is a big one. So they're able to enable their fans through this technology. First, uh, if you take a look at YouTube uh, TV, and even now they've got um, 1.6 billion likes and followers globally on uh, their social media platforms. NBA is now live stream in India, China, uh, Estonia, New Zealand, all these different countries. I believe the number is uh, 215 countries. So people are watching all over the world. The number is massive. It's, so is it the technology that's driving this trend to watch it that way? Or is it the way certain people want to watch the game, that they want to be able to watch it on their device or in a group setting? Well, yes, fan behavior is part of it, the whole psychological and what motivates them to watch. So, uh, yeah, the fans are younger. They're more diverse. Uh, the very fact that it's 24-7, they want to watch when when they want, how they want, where they want. They want to watch with their families. Some people want to watch alone. Some people want to watch in a group setting. 
you know, the cost to get to a Raptors game, of course, it's here in Toronto, it's very expensive. So, uh, you know, in, in Winnipeg, it's, it's next to impossible to get over here and get a ticket. So they need to think about other ways to be able to get that content to the fans um, that are that are uh, dispersed and not in the local market. I think it's ironic that we crave all this content on our handheld devices, but then when it comes to these big events, we're prepared to gather with groups of five, six, seven, twenty thousand people to watch the games on gigantic televisions or go to bars and and put up with people that aren't necessarily all that interested in the game that are there to be seen. I, I think there's there are some contradictions in those dichotomies in my mind. There is. So you actually, if you were to go there, you'd probably see, you absolutely would see fans not only congregating with one another and craving the fact that they want a sense of belonging. They want to feel like they're fitting in. They're part of um, a community and bringing people together to, to have those experiences. That's a certain type of fan. The fans that sit at home and watch on their cable uh, is, a, is also a, a certain type of fan. So the fan typologies are broken down into about five or six, six different categories. But definitely the emergence of technology and social media brings people almost down to their phones, but it also brings them together. So the form of entertainment is very psychological, cultural, and it's motivating these fans to do these things. So um, coming together across the country and creating the environments of community and, and being united is what sport does and specifically live sport. I hear a lot of positives here in the sense that you're bringing people together rather than everyone isolated in their own space or, you know, in their room or their living room watching the game by themselves. But on the other hand, uh, it, it, this could have a negative impact on our cable companies. Are we, are they doing enough to sort of save themselves? They are. I think uh, Sportsnet, as an example, is, is taking a look at this and really wanting to fully understand the fan base and where they're consuming and this is a very big part for them to remain competitive, and it's one of the challenges. And the competition for eyeballs is a very big part of, obviously, their business. But I do think that the outlook for them is positive, subject to them understanding the fan base, subject to them making sure that um, they're remaining competitive and investing in technology, investing in the media, of which they are doing. So, uh, you know, that they're they're also diversifying their business. The fact that Sportsnet, as an example, is airing the games on cable, but they also have a subscription. They also own part of the team, and they're able to leverage the fan base and multiple other of their assets. So I think that they're doing a good job. They need to maintain to be on top of it so that they don't become um, obsolete in this uh, very competitive technological space. Well, when you think about that, uh, that the Toronto Maple Leafs back in the day didn't want a radio broadcast to start until the second period when that became the technology of choice to uh, broaden the audience for hockey. We've come a long way where now every single game is on television just about 80 years later. It's, uh, it's fascinating to see how this has all grown and all changed. Uh, uh, very much appreciate your time this morning, Laurel. Can we call on you again sometime? Of course, anytime. Thank you for having me. That's Laurel Walzak. She's assistant professor, uh, faculty of communication and design experts at Ryerson University in Toronto. We appreciate her time this morning. Got a great text message here at 204-780-6868. A few weeks ago, you guys were saying you can get a ticket for just looking at your phone. Now you can look at it and... 
press one button. All these discrepancies make it confusing. It's best to just throw your phone in the trunk when you're going to drive, but it would be nice to know the rule. Lauren McNabb, where does this commentary come from and where does what's the source of it? For sure. Kevin Klein, he's a Winnipeg counselor. He shared a photo to Twitter earlier this week along with the caption, it was a long day, but I'm grateful to serve Charleswood Tuxedo, Westwood, and all of Winnipeg as I was on election day. And that photo is of him taking the selfie of him while driving. And in his sunglasses, you can see the reflection of one hand on the steering wheel and what appears to be the other hand touching his phone. So this, of course, led to some backlash. And then the Winnipeg police eventually looked into it and they found that he didn't legally do anything wrong. Here's Inspector Gord Spado. A camera app is definitely a non-communication function of the device. So a one-touch activation is reasonable. It's not something that we would support people doing on a regular basis because anytime you take your your attention away from the roadway, you create a danger to uh, yourself and others. Here's what Klein had to say after that conclusion. And I completely understand why people are offended. And that wasn't my intent. So, and I can appreciate people's concern, you know, how um, and their need to uh, vent online and in other ways. So he appreciates the concern. He can see why people would be upset. Uh, there's a couple things to talk about. First of all, just on the legalities of it and what the Winnipeg police had to say. I've interviewed Inspector Gord Spado a few times, and his message has been pretty consistent in the sense one of... One touch. The one touch, right? So if you have, if you need to hit the map, you know, you can hit it once. If you're answering a phone call, you can hit it once. Our listener is right. There were conversations about looking at your phone a mm-hmm. lot, and that was about doing it repeatedly. Like, if you, if you say you have... People watch shows while they drive, right? They'll have it running, or they'll have a podcast going, or they'll do things that are just crazy, or they'll be looking down down all the time as the texts come in to read them because they can appear on the front of your screen that's just a continue like a continually distracted driver which is about the which is about the look but again the police are saying we don't recommend this and, and I don't I don't know why anybody driving anywhere ever needs to take a picture of themselves okay so two questions here uh, the first one would be are you confused about the law as ever based on the response from WPS and did Councillor Klein handle this in the right fashion? TFJ, go. You know, <laughs> you know, you just left, you just said, here, Tristan, here's a, here's a minefield. Why don't you try navigating? That's my job. Uh, and, and Greg's just walking out of the room now to see how this goes. Uh, you, you know what? Let me uh, say this. I think just the, I think it's fascinating because this is a problem overall that really wouldn't have made headlines 10 years ago when you think about it, right? I mean, the concept of the selfie and distracted driving, that's really come to the forefront recently. So I think that's kind of interesting how this is such a new 21st century problem, if you will. Um, I am a little confused about the laws, especially hearing about what what uh, Inspector Spado had to say regarding this, because I was kind of under the impression, too, that, you know, um, maybe not so much you can't look at your phone when you're driving, but you have to be very, very careful when you're doing that. And, you know, when I'm driving, I don't have it mounted, but I and I never use it. I always use hands free or, you know, the voice assistant or whatever it may be. So I always have it kind of mounted sort of in this little nook in my car and it's plugged in and then I don't touch it at at all. But, you know, after hearing some of the laws, I was thinking, is that adequate enough? And now after hearing this, I'm thinking, oh, maybe I'm okay. I don't know. You don't need to like it's it's about being distracted, I think, is the messaging. mm -hmm. So you're distracted if you're looking at it constantly or you're distracted if you're touching it more than once. And and probably I don't know. I doubt it says in the law 
one touch. I think that the idea would be uh, the, the their leeway is in that understanding that to answer your phone, you could do that, or to, to hit an app to start it to function, it could say that. I don't know how specific the law is because the law is just distracted driving. If they right. think you're distracted... You get a ticket. The, I, for me, the bigger question is here, and I can respect that he's gone back, and he, you know, kudos to him for coming on air with Hal yesterday and trying to share his side of the story. Right, because yeah. often people just don't respond to these things. But so I will give that. But what I will say is I don't understand how he needed to do this in the first place. Nobody ever. I can I can understand someone behind the wheel seeing a tornado and being like, oh my god, I need to take a picture of this tornado or an accident or a fire. Yeah. Still wrong, mm-hmm. but I can understand that need. The thought process. The selfie. So we have this one listener right in. The bigger yep. question, he says. Is why he would even take the picture in the first place. What kind of grown man would even take a picture of himself driving and then feel the need to post it? Sounds like something a 15-year-old would do. <laughs> uh, all I've said consistently since the, the, the picture went up was that if I had flow like Kevin Klein, I would be posting selfies all the time. And flow, I mean his my, great hair. My phone stays in my pocket. Good for you, Unless Jeff. I pop a tire, of course. The, right. <laughs> right. Then uh, you're disabled and then you are... Yeah. Uh, but I'm off, I'm off the side of the rope. You're yeah. forced to be. Yeah, you, you, don't, you, don't need, you don't need to have your phone out. So I don't know. It's in my pocket. Well, Leave it there. In an emergency, you can answer the phone. I just... I, the, I get annoyed by sl- selfies to begin with, to be honest with you, unless they have other people in them. So I'm, I'm like super jaded about all the taking pictures of ourselves. but it's the... The behind the wheel selfie is just what are you? It's not even your best look. It's like a low angle. If you're me, you got a double chin on a low angle. I'm not taking that picture. It's my understanding, based on reporting from Paul Friesen, the Winnipeg Free Press, uh, Winnipeg Free Press, Winnipeg Sun, that the Blue Bombers have already sold five thousand tickets to the NFL preseason game. That's just from Blue Bomber season ticket holders who had the priority to purchase tickets when they went on sale just amongst pre, uh, season ticket holders a couple of days ago. They go on sale to the public at 10 o'clock tomorrow m- uh, morning. And if you live outside of Winnipeg or have friends or family who are planning to come in, the next thing you might want to look at after you snag those tickets are hotels. I went looking yesterday around 10 a.m. So keep in mind, these prices and our comparison are based on what we were looking at yesterday. So almost 24 hours ago. So 24 ago. hours ago, I, w- I, I picked you know five downtown hotels, a couple by the stadium. If you want to stay by the stadium, that's your most economical option right now. But either way, if you want to make a weekend out of it, rooms are going fast, particularly downtown. As of yesterday morning, there were none left at the Fairmont for August 22nd, which is the date of the game. And at several other locations I checked, the prices for that night have already gone up. So I looked at the rooms for the Thursday before, the Thursday of the game, and the Thursday after. Uh, In one case, and I'm trying to remember which hotel, it's on our website, globalnews.ca, the price was actually lower on the game night, but that that might change. Delta, so a room of the Delta Delta on game night, NFL game night, cost almost twice what it would if you stayed the week before or the week after. It's 361. Surge pricing is the call on Uber. You know what? This is this is how it works in the game, and this is all about driving business and economy, and it's going to be big. It could be very big for the economy. Scott Jocelyn is the president of the Manitoba Hotel Association and joins us now. Good morning, Scott. Good morning to you both. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for being with us. You know, when it comes to a game like this, um, which in theory shouldn't just draw locals, but people from outside our community, what does it mean for the industry? Well, I think it's great news for the industry. And not, not just the industry, but I think it's great for the, the city, the province. I think the exposure that you get from a tourism perspective, uh, people that perhaps haven't been here, 
maybe they don't think there's a reason to come here if you're a Packer fan and you can't get a ticket in Wisconsin and you want to come and see uh, the Packers play and you've never been up to Winnipeg, you come here, you experience Winnipeg, and uh, uh, maybe you stay longer or maybe you think about another visit, but uh, you certainly come up here and see all the great things that Winnipeg has to offer. Uh, Scott, one of the first things I did when I heard that the Heritage Classic was going to rejoin uh, and the Jets were going to be involved, I booked a hotel room for that date uh, on an app, and so I'm now in an enviable position of having actually a couple of different reservations. Are there people that do that where they kind of scoop more than one room in order to, to cover themselves a little bit? Yeah, I think that that can happen. I've heard of people doing the same thing in Regina. Myself, I was just in Regina actually for a conference, and I know the operators there are quite excited about it. I think what's, what's interesting about the football game is that you know, you got two teams, uh, obviously not from here. But, you know, one of the biggest leagues, you know, maybe the biggest league. Here you go. They're coming to Winnipeg. And uh, so you'll have Winnipegers excited about it. But, yeah, you certainly will have people traveling uh, uh, traveling into the city to see the game. And, again, not only is that good for our industry, but, you know, the restaurants are going to be visiting. The attractions are going to be taking in. It's just a great news story all around. Well, we talked about, too, the idea that it goes on an international stage with TV coverage or radio coverage or what have you, right? So it's it's good in terms of selling the city. Um, we're curious, you know, we keep hearing the need to have more hotels. We have more going up downtown, more by the convention center, by True North Square. Are we at a saturation point with that, or do we still have a, a pretty low vacancy rate when it comes to hotels in Winnipeg? Well, I think there are, there are certain areas of the city that probably could handle some more development in certain areas that are probably... At the you know at the very close to saturation point, uh, it'd be nice to be able to maybe pick up a few and move them around. But you know, I guess the point I'd like to leave you with is whenever there's whenever there's an event, uh, you know, we want to fill up all the hotel rooms. We want people coming to the city. We want people seeing all the great things that are happening in the city. Scott, if uh, I could make a commentary and uh, you can comment or not or choose not to, I think uh, one of the areas that uh, Winnipeg might be short on is that, uh, that, that, that upper level of hotel, that four or five star hotel. Uh, some of that inventory is getting a little bit dated in my mind. Have you got a comment on that? You know, I think it's, uh, it's a very competitive market. Uh, you know, you have to, uh, you have to make sure that you're uh, reinventing yourself. You have a very demanding customer and, and, uh, I think what's exciting about, uh, again, exciting with the football game, it happens at a time of year um, where a lot of our corporate uh, hotels are not seeing a lot of business travelers. So if we can fill up some properties at that time of year, that's that's helpful. But the hoteliers are always having to look at, look at themselves in the mirror and saying, okay, what are my people looking for? I want to be competitive. It's a very competitive marketplace. And I got to keep, uh, keep myself looking good so people can stay in my properties. Scott, appreciate your time as always, and uh, we look forward to speaking with you as we approach this event and, of course, on, on other issues. Many, many, Much appreciated. Yeah, great to talk to you, and uh, yeah, reach out whenever you can. I appreciate your interest in our issues, so thank you very much. You betcha. Scott Jocelyn, president of the Manitoba Hotel Association. Sean Branson, I was going to I was going to introduce him in just a moment. No, I wanted to explain no, to people No, because I want to tell his. people, Loren, I want to tell people that former Winnipeg Jet defenseman Jim Kite will Coming join us nine. in the studio after right. 9 o'clock. So uh, be ready to drop your gloves if you need to. No, I don't think Jimmy would do that anymore. But uh, looking forward to visiting with Jim Kite. Now, Loren, we can visit with our good friend Sean Branson. He's owner of Promenade Cafe, caterer for Fort Gibraltar, one of the most beautiful spots in the city. They've got an exciting event coming up this weekend. And it's about the best thing you can do is just to eat and get together and eat. So the event mm-hmm. is called the Manitoba Food Fest. 
uh, taking place at a wonderful venue. Tell us a bit mm-hmm. about what was behind the idea of gathering people together like this. Well, the idea is to support local. It's always been sort of a part of uh, of uh, my philosophy owning restaurants over the last 16 years. And uh, we do a couple of different events where it's supporting local restaurants with Poutine Cup, which we do at Fort Gibraltar every year, as well as Winnipeg Beer Fest, which uh, we found that the local craft brewers needed a bit of, bit of help uh, with marketing. And so we do 600 people for uh, the uh, Winnipeg Beer Fest. So we decided we always wanted to do another food event and uh, connected with Sherry Sobey from Generation Green. And we contacted a bunch of vendors and were sampling made in Manitoba local products for food, um, wine, spirits, and uh, and also uh, all three of the distillers, the local distillers are there too. 40, more than 40 vendors. There's, yeah, right now we're at 42. Wow. So, and are yeah. they set up like uh, at different tables? Like how would yeah. it work? So the so the event itself is inside the fort walls. Like so inside the walls of Fort Gibraltar, uh, everyone has sort of their, their tents, 10 by 10 booths. There's 42 of them spread around the, the, uh, the beautiful historic uh, Fort Gibraltar. So people can go around, sample foods. They can buy directly from the vendors, as well as we're doing some fundraising for Festival de Voyager. So you can throw some axes, uh, some leg wrestling, 50-50 draw uh, to raise money for activities at Fort Gibraltar. Sean, we, we love to celebrate local. And uh, the thing that I think appetizes me the most about supporting local is how willing local is willing to support local. I think there's a tremendous sense of community that uh, I just absolutely adore, quite frankly. Yeah, it's a great community and it's always, it's a little bit more challenging to get all your stuff from the different individual vendors, but it's so worth it. The money stays in the province and and part of the thing for these events, whether it's the beer festival or or uh, MB Food Fest is that we're able to, I, I meet these people on a regular basis so that we can uh, feature their products at my restaurant, but to have all them, like 42 vendors in one venue, to be able to taste things. You see them on Instagram, you see them on, on social media, but now they're going to be there and you'll be able to put the product you know in your mouth and taste it, as well as purchase directly from them and make those connections. But it's also the idea uh, that they get together, you all get together without being like, you know, it'd be very easy as a business to say, well, I don't want to compete directly at this event with someone because now they might not come here, they'll go there, but the, the more the masses come together, the more they have options, the more the better everyone else does. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. There And we found this, which was interesting with the craft brewers, is the first year the original idea for the beer fest was to have them all compete and give away medals. They didn't want that. They just wanted to showcase their products, connect with their customer, and it's a great feeling. And certainly uh, dealing with uh, Sherry Solby from Generation Green, who's uh, sort of the co-founder of this event, uh, she has a lot of connections. She has a vegan cafe, so the amount of vendors that we have uh, that uh, are, are tied into the vegan community are, are pretty amazing and vegetarian. So there's a lot of variety of, of things. I think what you learn real quick is discerning palates uh, mm-hmm. love to commiserate and to gather together. And so if you've got someone who is dedicated either philosophically to supporting local or they have a, just more of an affinity for, for fresh as it can be, mm-hmm. if you get a lot of those local or like-minded people together, you're actually growing your customer base. And and for a lot of folks, it is sort of counterintuitive to to get together with your competition. But we, we know now yeah. that the, the more like-minded people that we get together in a in a room or in Fort Gibraltar, the better it is overall. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, it is a great community. It's it's a growing community, but there's 
you know, certain barriers, whether it's like as soon as you grow to a certain amount, it's the marketing aspect of things sure. and, and getting the shelf space in the different stores. Very easy to do for the larger distributors, but uh, a little bit more difficult. There's a lot of, let's put it this way, even uh, like my honey guy that from John Russell Honey that I've been buying for the last 18 years, he st- still delivers. Your you honey know, guy. The honey. I like how you have a honey guy. Yeah, and our eggs, uh, whether, <laughs> you know, our, our butter from, uh, you know, uh, Notre Dame Creamery butter. It's just, it's really good. And when, with now with carbon taxes and more expenses for gas and moving things around, it's really not that much more to, to deal with local. In fact, in some cases, I'm not paying fuel surcharges because my big distributors are. Uh, the local guy dropping off the butter well, hasn't hit me with that charge yet. And let's talk about the taste. Too. I mean, I mean, when it comes local, I mean, it's like so many times, you know, your vegetables when you've bought them yeah. are, have come from 20 miles up the road or 20 kilometers up the road as opposed to from Mexico, right? It's huge. And it makes a huge difference probably for you uh, as a chef to, to, well, to have that. We don't realize like what is involved in getting products to us, like uh, in, in Manitoba, tw- you know, 12 months of the year, like shipping a lot of our food now with the dr- drought in California mm-hmm. is all coming from South America. I mean, that product is moving for very, very far, far away. So it's really important to, uh, you know, it, and to, for it to last that long, to be on a slow boat all the way from there, or, you know, it's just, it's just, yeah. Now I don't want people to get the idea that you're endorsing the idea of the carbon tax, but <laughs> it might be, or maybe you are, but it might be one of the, the beneficial side effects of, of having it cost more to transport goods to our community. It's definitely going to change uh, the way the consumer uh, reacts. It certainly, like even we, I have a third venue at uh, Lower Fort Cary, which is 15 minutes north of the city that we do events. And even just staffing the place for the, you know, is like, do you have a car? Well, a lot of people don't have cars, uh, you know, in the younger ages and, and, uh, and, and gas money is a, is, is a real issue. You know, what is, what is the gas mileage, uh, you know, so that's yeah, a thing. Sean, we often have you on and the events that you host are sold out. So you're just here mm-hmm. for information only. Are there tickets available for Sunday? We, we have 45 tickets and then we're at the 500 mark. Wow. So hmm. uh, we there still are tickets available. Yeah. on uh, And it's uh, MB Food Fest on Eventbrite. We also have mbfoodfest.com where there's links to uh, the tickets. So, yeah. Sean, thanks for what you do. Thanks for being so communicative with us and being such a good friend to CJOB. Thanks for making me hungry. And Yeah, well, you know, (laughs) it's it's lunchtime for us. Thanks, Sean. (laughs) We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Lots of controversy, lots of conversation surrounding Winnipeg City Councilor and a take from the Winnipeg Police Service. It's our job to clarify. That's what we're going to do. That's what we're trying to do here. It's not about what he did. It's about what is the general public allowed to do. And I think there's still lots of questions when we moved into that November 1st change to distracted driving laws last year. Okay, well, what am I going to get ticketed for? Uh, the conclusion from the Winnipeg police is the local counselor is not going to face any charges after posting a photo of himself while driving. And we wanted to say, okay, well, why is that? Inspector Gord Spado is with the Winnipeg's police service and its traffic division. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, so he legally didn't do anything wrong. The question from so many is how? <laughs> that, is, that is a question that I've heard uh, a number of times. Um, basically, you have to look at the Highway Traffic Act and also the accompanying regulations that are called the Cellular Telephone and Other Hand-Operated Electronic Devices Regulation. And you have to read those two documents together because the Highway Traffic Act gives you the high level, this is what you can't do. And, <clears throat> excuse me. In this case, you can't use the device um, if it's got a cellular phone function uh, unless it's configured and equipped to allow hands-free use as a telephone and is used in a hands-free manner. But 
the Highway Traffic Act doesn't define what used in a hands-free manner means. So that's where you have to go to the regulations. And it specifically says that using a hands-free manner means that a hand-operated electronic device is used in accordance with the following criteria. It's not held in the user's hands while it is being used. It is securely anchored to an interior surface of a vehicle or held in a holder that is securely anchored to an interior surface of the vehicle in a manner that does not interfere with vehicle safe operation. It's within easy reach of the driver. And in uh, Councillor Klein's case, it is used and controlled exclusively by voice commands, or if it is touched during use, it is touched not more than once to initiate, accept, or end a telephone call, or to use or cease using a non-communication function of the device. So it specifically says one touch? It says you can use one touch for specific functions. Um, so uh, if it's for the phone call, accept, uh, initiate, or end a telephone call, or if you're using a non-communication function, such as the camera in this case, or a map function, or what have you, to use it for one touch for using it or to cease using that uh, that function of the device. So that's that's the uh, the circumstances in Councillor Klein's case. He he indicated that he used Siri to launch the app, so he hadn't touched it at that point. He touched it once to take the the picture, and that's the only evidence we have to to base any decisions on. And this, uh, I know people are saying that. He, it's a two sets of rules, and he got away with something that nobody else would have, but that's not true, that these are the regulations, and this is what we enforce. Uh, now, uh, Inspector Spadel, the only question I have is that we're 100% sure, and I, I'm not here to try Councillor Klein, but uh, we're 100% sure that he, that he had this device mounted somewhere on his vehicle, that he wasn't holding it in his hand. We're 100% comfortable with that? Uh, we've actually inspected his car with his consent, and we've seen, identified the, the mount, uh, where it was located is consistent what you see with what you see in the picture. So uh, in the absence of any, any evidence to the contrary, we have to take that at face value. And um, the mount is there. I'm assuming he had it in there. To be honest with you, I tried to duplicate holding a phone in the manner that I can tell from that picture he, was, he had his hand positioned. And with the angles that that phone was at, I don't think I could do that and, t- and take the picture. Wow. What, what do you say then? You, you, you obviously did due diligence to make sure that this was the case here. But then there's on the other side. So it's, and I get you're in a tough position. There's people saying, OK, well, there's, you know, I got a ticket for plugging in my phone and charging it. And, you know, you're going to have all sorts of people sharing their experiences. On the flip side, there's also people saying we had the police investigate this. Why? Uh, well, you know what? This is uh, one of those situations where uh, people are held to a higher standard in certain uh, certain roles, and and I really believe that uh, Councillor Klein, because of the public b- backlash on this, um, deserved us to take a look at it. Um, we had uh, initially looked at it and said, well, there's not much here until we started getting some context to it, and uh, that came through the media. And it was one of those things that now we have context. Now we have to actually uh, look at it and make sure that uh, from the public's perspective that he isn't getting away with something without us looking at it. Right? So if this was a general public, would we take a, a Twitter thing and, and, and try to look at, at it in this type of detail? Eh, I'd, I'd be surprised. But um, like I said, this was something that we have to show and be transparent that nobody's getting away with something that is uh, unlawful because of their position. I think that's more than fair. You've been more than fair with us, Inspector Spado. Thanks, as always, for your time and the clarifications involved in our discussion. Oh, you're welcome. That's uh, Inspector Gord Spado with Winnipeg Police Service.
I think we can comfortably introduce Jim Kite, former defenseman of the Winnipeg Jets, played 13 years in the National Hockey League. I'm going by memory here. Winnipeg, Ottawa, Calgary, and I want to say Pittsburgh. Did I get that right, Jim? Oh, I've been missing San Jose. San Jose Sharks, of course. Great to see you in Winnipeg, Jim. Thanks for this. Uh, It's great to be back. And uh, always great to see you. Saw saw you on the ice at the Heritage Classic. What was that like before we move on to the task at hand? Oh, the Heritage Classic was a fantastic experience. Number one, we won the game. We finally beat the uh, Edmonton Oilers. So during my era, they seemed to win the big games all the time. At least we have uh, bragging rights for the rest of my life when we play that team. Well, we beat you the last time. Uh, but yeah, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Uh, you know, Mark Chipman and the Jets uh, did a, an amazing job in welcoming the alumni. And uh, not only did the guys who play in the game, there's 22, 23 guys who played, but uh, there was 75 other guys who came into town as well. So it was a, an incredible experience. It was a beautiful day. It was a fantastic weekend. I couldn't have asked for a better experience. So a lot of people remember you as a, as a tough guy. And uh, is that okay that we remember you that way? As, as, uh, do we use the term enforcer when we talk about Jim Kite? Is it impossible not to? Uh, I would say that I was a, uh, a tough physical defenseman. If you stood in front of my net, it was a high rent zone. You had to pay the price. And usually the other team's enforcer would come after me if I was giving their, their better players a hard time. So, uh, yeah, you could say, yeah, definitely I sit up for myself. I'm a big guy. I'm 6'5", and, uh, you know, when you're that size, uh, there's an expectation that you, you defend your teammates, and I was happy to do it. And, uh, but anything like in a, in a, a, game, a hockey team, a successful team, is like a wolf pack. You have to stand up for each other. And in my era, you know, I was always uh, running into guys like Tim Hunter, Marty McSorley, et cetera, and... Uh, uh, and it was just a part of the game, and you really wanted to make sure that your your teammates felt comfortable, and there was just a certain level of intimidation in the game. So if I can make a guy like uh, Steve Eisenman think twice about uh, handling the puck, if he knows I'm coming, and you know you have you have superstars in the game, and if you give them time and space, they will make a superstar play. You're the type of player I think come playoff time during the playoffs. We want that guy, and you often say, "Where's the guy that's going to hold people accountable?" Do you do you have when you mentioned about the word enforcer or um, things like that, is, is that kind of a word you try to st- stay away from? Because sometimes people put a label on things. Well, in my era, I guess the enforcers played a regular shift. Marty mm-hmm. McSorley played regular. Tim Hunter played regular, guys like that. So, But when you get into the late 90s, early 2000s, you had these uh, nuclear weapons on each bench that played two, three minutes a game, and they would just go out and look at each other and say, you want to go because, mm-hmm. well, that was their job. So I wasn't a fan of gratuitous fighting just for the, f- the sake of fighting, but there was a reason to fight because if something happened in the game or you were sticking up for a teammate, then that's 100% fine in my, my, my eyes. But when you look at an enforcer, if you look at a, someone's career, they would have, uh, you know, you look at McSorley, he has over three, 330 fights, 350 fights in his career. Uh, you know, I had 148, mm. so uh, and that's over 17 years of professional sport. But uh, so I stood up for myself, no question. And and uh, you know, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Well, the one fight I remember most vividly is the one between you and Gord Kluzak at Winnipeg Arena, Boston Bruins. Would have been 1984, I want to say, maybe 1983, yeah. and that was our gym class on the Monday because it was a Saturday night hockey night in Canada. <laughs> Our assignment was to count the punches, uh, and, yeah. and, and you landed more punches. I think yeah, it was 83. So, 
Yeah, so I was a I was a rookie. I wasn't playing much. Uh, Gord Kluzak was the first pick overall in my my draft in 1982, and uh, Boston was on the power play, and he was in front of our net clearing out the defenseman. And uh, I said something from the bench, and the coach Barry Long said, "Well, let's see what you can do." So I said, "Okay." So I went out and I knocked him down a couple of times, and and he was on the power play, so you need to be able to you got to pay the price to stand in front of the net. He didn't like it, and so he we ended up. Uh, having a disagreement and we both dropped our gloves and uh you know it was uh, I was just glad I had a big smile on my f- face at the end of the fight because I was just glad to survive it because we were just going back and forth and throwing haymakers at each other so well we should move on from this because you're here for a very special reason you're being honored by Dash which is an incredible organization in our community it stands for direct action in support of community homes they're a nonprofit organization they've been around since 1974 and they provide meaningful residential vocational and leisure programs within our community to persons with intellectual disabilities and they do so by addressing their individual physical emotional and social needs and Jim you were always such a big part of the community when you were a player here this must mean a lot to be honored by a community organization with this sort of history and the work that they do oh absolutely I think any community is judged on how they they treat people who can't advocate for themselves and uh, personally I'm I'm known uh, to be the only deaf player in the history of the National Hockey League. So I'm orally deaf. I have a profound hearing loss and I lip read. So I'm, I'm in the disability community. I hate that word. So I love the fact that it's called the Possibilities Gala tonight. Yeah. I was going to say what word. And so that's the yeah. word you'd like us to use going forward, the possibility. Yeah, well, you want to look, everybody has a different level of ability. Mm-hmm. And so it's uh, the Possibilities Gala is amazing. The abilities, uh, we need, everybody is special in their own way. And we, everybody talks about diversity and inclusion. I think it should be flipped around. It should be inclusion first and diversity second because everybody needs to be included. And then after that, everybody is special in their own way. So, uh, but I have a son who's on the autistic spectrum. Uh, person, my career was done by a car accident. So I had to recuperate from a brain injury over two years. Uh, I was a victim of a car accident. So I can uh, speak it, speak to many things and many different levels and uh, the change that you go through and but having that support uh, and also advocating for my own son uh, in the school system and now he's in his 20s and uh, you look at any any parent who has children you if they're so-called normal or not that you out look at them and you, you they go through schooling and you think they're going to be okay in the world when you have a, a son or a daughter a child with uh, an intellectual disability, an adaptive disability, you wonder, well, what's going to happen to them when I'm gone? Who's going to be able to look out for them? And so organizations like Dash are incredible, incredible support. They make people like me sleep better at night, uh, knowing that uh, there's uh, an organization like that in my community. Our current guest is a legend in Winnipeg hockey history, Craig Wakefort, recipient of the 2019 Dash Merit Award. He'll be honored tonight at the RBC Convention Center in downtown Winnipeg. We're talking to Jim Kite. The Dash Possibilities Gala has raised over $500,000 over the years of this incredible event. And Jim Kite is being awarded and recognized with this award this evening. And Jim, you and Loren were having an interesting conversation off the air. And why don't you guys continue that and then we'll wrap things up. Oh, I was just mentioning about which... With Cam. With Cam. Oh, we're just talking about my colleague who carried your... 
your hockey card around with him, and he was at Vimy Ridge. He was telling us a few years ago, and you're allowed to leave something as long as it's not going to get away the natural foliage. And he wanted to leave something Canadian with him at that site in memory, so he left a Jim Kite card. So there we go. I thought that, that was pretty absolutely, cool. That is absolutely incredible. Uh, I am uh, actually I'm very proud uh, to be an honorary colonel in the Canadian Armed Forces. And that's something that uh, I'm actually a, in the RCAF. So once a jet, always a jet. Right. So uh, to hear that story gave me goosebumps. It's, a, it's pretty incredible. I'd love to be able to go to visit Vimy Ridge mm-hmm. and, and visit it. And certainly what happened, you know, the 75th anniversary of D-Day yesterday and the sacrifice that that generation made for us was incredible. Jim, I always marveled at, at how well-spoken you were in conversation on air, off the air, um, and uh, been a been big fan of yours since I was a little kid. Uh, but one misconception that I had that we cleared up in the last break, I think a lot of Jets fans would have, was that that ear protection that you wore in your helmet, those were not, in fact, hearing aids. They were there to protect you and to protect your hearing aids. That's correct. So I just wore ear covers in my hearing aid, uh, in my helmet, and that my hearing aids were not attached to my helmet. There was a misconception out there that my hearing aids were built into my helmet. So, But I wore my helmet quite tight, so if my helmet did come off uh, during the play or in an altercation, my hearing aids usually went with my helmet. So uh, guys like Scott Arneo would uh, pick up my hearing aids for me. I couldn't tell the referee, okay, hold on, I got to go pick up my hearing aids. No, I had to go to the box. And, but, uh, and I always talked to the referees before each and every game. Uh, particularly one that I had never seen before, just to let them know that, you know, if you need to blow your whistle nice and loud, and if I happen to get into an altercation, then uh, and my, my helmet comes off. So I need to educate them. It's part of the communication aspect of it. They don't know what they don't know, mm-hmm. so you need to let them know. Jim Kite, thank you for this. It's an absolute honor to have you back in the city and for what you're doing for Dash tonight. We'll uh, hopefully do this again sometime. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on CJOB. Talk soon.